Please have a seat. So say first of all, well done. Uh, we are two-thirds the way through reading our immersed Bible reading experience. It is six volumes which cover the Old Testament and New Testament, and we are two-thirds the way through. So we're still to read these two very thin little volumes. Uh, Poets is going to be in God Willing the Autumn Time, and then Chronicles in the start of 2024. But look at what we've already covered. We're already over two-thirds of the way through, and uh, I'm saying this to encourage us because we've just been through the thickest book of all in the last eight weeks of Prophets. And we started off reading Messiah, which is the New Testament, and, uh, and then we went into the Old Testament, and we went to the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and Immersed Beginnings. And in that, among other characters, we met Moses, who uh, the sort of archetypal prophet of the Old Testament, and uh, who revealed the detail of the covenant relationship between the sovereign Lord, the Lord of heaven's armies, and his people Israel. And then after that, we went into kingdoms, and we saw the rising up and the downfall of the glory of the kingdom of Israel. And uh, then in that, we, we met Samuel the prophet, Elijah, and Elisha, who heard the Lord on behalf of the people, and who also did many, many miraculous signs. And then most recently, we've read the 15 writing prophets of the Old Testament, uh, three major, 12 minor, not because they're less important, but because the three major prophets just wrote longer books, that's the only reason, and we've read the 12 minor prophets. Um, so we've just finished that. And so in that, we, we obviously met uh, writers like Ezekiel and, and Isaiah and Jeremiah, the major prophets, and many others. We finished with Jonah. And we got used to reading short, snappy, poetic, striking, graphic oracles page after page of just short, poetic, striking, pithy sayings that were very memorable because they were so graphic. And so now, one thing that strikes me is over this last week is, is looking back or, not, or now going back into the New Testament and, and reading or listening to this great sermon near the start of Matthew's Gospel and Jesus starts with what looks and sounds very much like a prophetic oracle. In fact, what he does is he summarizes the whole of the Christian life in about, in about 20 seconds. Jesus has a wonderful economy of words. So just as the Lord's Prayer, which encapsulates really everything we need to pray. You can pray that in about 25 seconds. These wonderful attributes of someone, Jesus himself, living a kingdom life, he starts his great Sermon on the Mount by just summarizing everything to do with the Christian life in a matter of seconds. And he says them in these sayings, which I imagine left people then and will leave people now either in wonder or total confusion. And Jesus often told stories, parables, and, and he starts this sermon with these enigmatic sayings, which I imagine he is hoping and intending 
will leave us scratching our heads thinking, how on earth can that be true? We're used in life to believing that the people who are blessed are the people who are wealthy, people who um, have success, visible success, people who um, really just everything they want seems to come to them, and they have, they have victory in battle. And, and the world sees that those people are the ones who are blessed. They're the ones who are, who are the winners. They're the ones who are the victors. And then Jesus, as he stands up to speak in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, as Isaiah because he, he, he actually sits down and people gather around him and he, he starts to teach people who have come, as it were, to the house of Jacob, to the mountain of the Lord. And Jesus starts off with these sayings and he says to them that the people who are truly blessed are those who are humble, those who are poor, those who are mournful, and those who are peacemakers. And I imagine as people heard him that day, they thought, how, how can that be true? How can it be true that those who, who are poor are blessed, those who do what they're told are blessed, those who work for peace are blessed, those who are humble and put other people first, how, how can they be the ones who are blessed? Jesus isn't saying that this is the way the world works. He wasn't saying to the people who heard him that day, this is the way the world is, because you and I know that actually it doesn't seem in the world that those who are humble inherit everything. Often people who are mournful don't seem to be comforted. There are many people who long and thirst for justice who go to their graves never getting it. And we know that in Northern Ireland. How many times have we, have we heard a, a son or a daughter interviewed whose brother or sister is among the victims of the disappeared? And who say, my mother or my father longed for 40 years to find out if there was going to be someone arrested for their murder and if their grave was going to be discovered, if someone was going to tell them where their, where their son or daughter was buried. And we know many stories. We've seen it on TV again and again where someone has longed for justice and they went to their grave without ever seeing it. And yet Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. So people would have come away that day thinking, how, how can this be? Everything seems entirely upside down. And that's because the world is a broken place, and so everything is the wrong way up in the world. And that's why when Jesus summarizes the Christian life, everything looks as if it's entirely the wrong way around. Everything looks as if it's upside down. And he begins by saying, blessed are those who are poor and realize that they need God. That's where the kingdom of God opens up. And that's why we sing hymns coming up to Holy Week and Easter and Good Friday, where we say, you know, nothing in my hand I bring, empty to your cross I cling. It's a recognition of the fact that we have nothing 
to offer towards our salvation. As Isaiah said, all of our good deeds are like filthy rags. We have nothing in our merit to say, God, accept me and receive me and bless my life. Our, our hands are completely empty. Jesus said, blessed are those who realize that their hands are completely empty because the kingdom of God belongs to you. And then he says, blessed are those who are mournful, who are sorrowing. And he's not talking about human bereavement. What he's saying is, if you are deeply uneasy and sorrowful over realizing that your life has fallen short of the fullness of its potentiality, of the fullness of what God made you to be, and there's a sense of deep sorrow in your life that actually we have fallen short of the glorious wonder of being a human being. If you know that sorrow in your life, Jesus said, God is going to step into your life and he's going to strengthen you. That's what the word comfort means. God will strengthen you in that place of dissatisfaction with your life, of sorrow over the things that you know you should have done or said but didn't do it, or the things you've done or said that you know you shouldn't have done and you shouldn't have said. But Jesus says, when we come to God and we say, I, I'm leaving that behind, I'm stepping into this new life, I, I'm so, I hate the sin that has spoiled my life and has, has not meant full glory to God, God says, that's when I'll step into your life and I will strengthen you, I will comfort you. These wonderful summaries of life in the kingdom of God are not about what life in the world is like. It's about what makes sense in the promised future kingdom of God. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we ask the Lord to come and to conceive in us his new kingdom. And so what Jesus is saying only makes sense to someone who has, as Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, who has been born from above. Because only then do these things begin to make sense. Whenever God comes to live within us and is conceived in our spirit by the Spirit of Christ through his death and resurrection, through the forgiveness of being washed and having him come to dwell within us, that is when the realization begins to come that what Jesus taught that day on that mountainside as he sat down 2,000 years ago begins to make sense. But it only makes sense to those who have the Spirit of Christ within them and who understand that the way that God is working in us for his future kingdom coming into now, a reality which is here and now, then we, we begin to realize the truth of these words. We begin to realize that if we live a life that is humble and actually seeks to put other people first, that we give them their dignity as an image bearer of God, actually what happens is we discover what it means ourselves to be fully human. 
and we discover a fresh dignity of what it means to be a human being, not by putting ourselves first, but by putting other people first. And in the wonderful paradox and joy of the kingdom of heaven, we discover the fullness of life and what it means to be a fully dignified human being whenever we put God first and we put the people around us, all of whom are made in the image of God, first. And that's when the wonder happens, when we realize that we ourselves have a fresh dignity because we see that dignity in the people who are around us whom we serve. This reality is one in which earth came to know it whenever Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a woman. The kingdom of God arrived with the conception of Jesus. And it's a kingdom that has been growing ever since and is unstoppable. We can see it in his miracles, in his mercy, in his compassion, and in his words that testify to that reality. But we can also see it in his conception, in his growth in the womb, in his being born in a stable, in living a life where no one really knew who he was. And we've seen the truth of the words that Jesus spoke on the mountainside that day lived out in him. And so at the age of 30, Jesus stands up and really he describes what he is living out in his own life. And because he lives that life out, there is, there is confusion and wonder and questions that surround him because he is living a heavenly life on earth and earth is struggling to work out what is going on. I love the words of Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase of the Bible in the message. And uh, this is how he summarizes what Jesus said that day. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and His rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink in the best meal you'll ever have. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being caring, you find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. That persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. 
Jesus' declaration, his prophetic declaration, is a summons to live life as he lived it. It's a life to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. It's an invitation to live in a way which will only fully make sense whenever Christ returns and his kingdom comes in all of its glory. This is what it means to live by faith in Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and to the glory of our Heavenly Father. Sometimes we read these words and we think, I, I need to try harder to live this way. That's not how it works. We don't become more like Jesus by trying harder. We become more like Jesus by trusting more. And the way we do that is through the spiritual disciplines we've spoken about a bit before, where we purposely put ourselves before God and through solitude and silence and fasting and prayer and celebration and confession and worship and fellowship and all the other spiritual exercises. We place ourselves before God and he does what only he can do. He brings about new life. He brings about renewal. We simply find ways the same way Jesus did, by going off to be by himself, by fasting and praying, to place ourselves before the Father and for the Father to ignite in us by the power of his Spirit a life that comes from heaven and is powerful on earth in a way that earth itself doesn't necessarily understand. And when that happens, the characteristics of Jesus grow in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Things that we cannot manufacture. Things that no matter how hard we clench our fists and say, I want to become more loving, just not the way it works. It's only as a gift from God. Our job is to live our lives in a way which opens us up to the goodness of God being poured in. That means being less busy. It means putting aside our own agenda. It means praying constantly and regularly, Lord, fill me, fill me, fill me with your Holy, Holy Spirit. And also as well, that in that what happens is that the Holy Spirit then not only works in us, but also works through us. And so the, the gifts that he employs through us are, are those wonderful gifts of encouraging other people, of healing other people, of declaring truth to other people, of practical help, uh, of mercy, uh, of teaching and pastoral care and intercession and... Uh, all of those many, many ways 
supernatural ways that God empowers us to actually show people, encourage people what it looks like to live a life in this world which is blessed by Jesus Christ. That's what we're here for. We're here to live a life which, in which we share in the prophetic witness of Jesus Christ. That as others look at us in our day-to-day lives and as a church family in the middle of Bangor City, that it brings up this question mark. Why are those people living like that? Why does their life look different And it creates a hunger and a thirst in them. That's how I came to faith in Jesus Christ, going on to a youth fellowship when I was 14 years old. Nearly everyone was older than me. And I realized these people have something that I do not have. And so over the next number of years, I just tried to find out what was the thing that they had that I didn't have. And the answer was Jesus Christ. Shall we stand together?